Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Lucy Ricca. Lucy is a fellow at the Stanford Center on the Legal Profession, but for today's purposes, more interestingly, is the Executive Director of the Utah Office of Legal Services Innovation. Many of you have probably been following what's been going on in Utah. But Lucy's been instrumental in helping Utah's Supreme Court build its legal regulatory sandbox, through which entities may use new models for legal businesses and offer new kinds of legal services to Utah's public. It's a fascinating model where economic regulations governing lawyers can be relaxed, data gathered, and policy improved. We've long known that rules preventing non-lawyer ownership and investment in law firms has been a barrier to innovation. Utah is seeking to change that. Listen in to today's interview to hear all about the origin of the Utah Regulatory Sandbox, how Lucy got involved, and learn more about the types of entities that have been approved to operate there. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Well, hey, Lucy, how are you? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Happy to see you, hear you. So let's talk about your current venture, which I find absolutely fascinating with the state of Utah as your executive director of the Office of Innovation. And I was thinking we would structure the conversation. Let's talk a little bit about current state and then talk a little bit about the journey it was to get there, because that's fascinating to me. And then third, let's move into where you see it going and what you see happening next. So let's start by talking about the work the Utah Supreme Court is authorizing and I gather directing is designed to really deal with access to justice issues. And you were on a task force that wrote a report and published in August of 19. And there's a quote in there that really resonated with me. And it's, it's, after talking about the access to justice gap, it said, quote, cannot volunteer or donate the problem away, close quote, which I, is such a, an amazing summary of the problem. And what your office is trying to do is trying to do something other than donate or volunteer the problem away. So maybe you could just give us a couple of minutes of what is the regulatory sandbox you're governing? What is the, the Office of Innovation? And where do you stand today? Okay. That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, we can break it down into pieces. <laughs> no, it's fine. I could just, I could go for hours. So you're right. I love that you picked that quote because it really encapsulates sort of so much that has been challenging about achieving regulatory reform in the past and why what's happening in Utah, as well as Arizona, are really taking that sort of head on. So Becky Sandifer, who's on our innovation office board and, uh, you know, probably needs no introduction, but is, you know, the foremost researcher on access to justice in the country, probably the world, MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, just a wonderful, wonderful person. She does and amazing she makes, stuff. Really, she's fantastic. It's such an extraordinary honor to be able to work with her. But she makes the really good point that, you know, in the United States, we decided along, I mean, we're a capitalist country. We generally look to the market to solve 
most of our problems. And that's certainly true of legal. We do not have a government that provides legal services generally. A couple of exceptions, obviously, with criminal defense. And we've got subsidies, government subsidies, very, very limited for things like legal aid. But generally, the market provides, you know, it's, it's a market-based legal services system. And so to that end, really what the Utah project is about is about allowing the market to actually be a functional market. So if you think about the traditional kind of regulation of the practice of law in the United States, it's one of the most kind of intrusively regulated areas. That used to be true for a lot of other professions as well. It used to be true with for medical. Though other professions have loosened those regulatory restrictions. The legal profession is not for the most part. But if you think about the combination of the rules of professional conduct and the unauthorized practice of law rules slash doctrine, it's really a tightly, tightly restricted market in that you have a very, very broad definition of what the underlying economic activity is, right? So the practice of law, as we know, the definition is really vague, but can kind of be shorthanded as anything a lawyer does. So that's a lot of activity and not just related to court, right? We, we know that. And so very, very broad definition of the underlying economic activity, very, very strict restrictions on who can provide that activity who can own services that provide that activity, who the providers can enter into business partnerships with, you know, all the kind of aspects of Rule 5.4, how uh, compensation really has to be structured, how income coming in, like where that can come from and where it can go. All of that is sort of wrapped into Rule 5.4s and then some of the other rules as well, like 1.15 and others. But they're really economic restrictions, you know, they're couched in ethical terms, they're couched in in the case of Rule 5.4, which is really what I'm focusing on here, you know, that this is an ethical rule to protect the independent legal judgment of, of a lawyer. But it's an economic restriction. It says, therefore, you can't do all these. You, you're, the way that you can structure your economic activity is your business is really, really restricted. The other kind of aspect of this is that, you know, we have a very, very high bar for entry into the profession. Our regulatory system is based on high expectations around qualifications. So, you know, JD, accredited law school, bar exam, moral character, pay the dues, etc. And so that makes it quite expensive. And it makes it expensive to produce law. And then it also is, again, because of 5.4, really restricted in how you can raise capital to do that. And so I'm sort of shorthanding a lot of this, but the the result, I think what we've seen, and this has become more and more acute as law has become more and more kind of immersed into all facets of our lives. Like, and this is true across the legal services market, corporate and individuals. There's so much more law that we all have to deal with on a regular basis, you know, whether it's like, you know, benefits or family law or what have you. And then on the corporate side, all of the regulatory um, environment. Law has become, there's so much more law to deal with. And yet the system is just not able to scale in the way that we need it to because it is so tightly restricted. So that's why we see that's sort of like the economic analysis of the access to justice crisis that we face now, which is that most people don't get help, legal help at all from anybody. And they definitely don't get it from a lawyer. So that's sort of like the landscape that the Utah court looked at. And these arguments that I'm or these descriptions that I'm stating are ones that have been made by my old faculty director at Stanford, Deborah Rohde. I mean, she's 
she started making these arguments in the late 70s, early 80s. Long time. Um, and then, they, yeah, I mean, and she kept making them. And then more recently, Professor Jillian, I mean, there's lots of faculty members and, and others who have who described this, but recently, uh, Professor Jillian Hadfield has really made distinct, who is an economist as well as a JD, made distinctly economic arguments about the state of the legal services market that I think have really kind of illuminated the ethical rules as economic restrictions. The other piece of it was that that these rules that we have in place that are so restrictive and so impactful on the market, essentially like forcing a dysfunctional legal market, right? There's no evidence that they're necessary because they've been around a long time and we learn, you know, we learn in law school that, well, you know, the independent legal judgment of a lawyer is really important. And, you know, I, th I don't know that anybody would disagree with that, but then we learn, and also it's necessary to preserve that to not let lawyers go into business with anybody else. And that second piece, there's no evidence for that. There's no empirical research that bears that out. And so- But you must have encountered that argument. You're right, there's absolutely no data, but it's ingrained in the culture of lawyers, right? We've all been taught that in law school. We've grown up with that. That must have been that point you're making about the economic analysis and the use of data confronting this belief system had to be a big challenge for the team in, in getting to where you are, I presume, yeah? Oh, yeah. And I like that you're using the past tense, but it actually continues. I mean, every, every day, that's one of the biggest challenges is to say, look, this thing that we all kind of take for granted, that we all assume to be true, that we as lawyers can't actually like hold our own, that somehow by walling us off from business or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, however you want to describe the boogeyman, we are somehow above the profit motive. That makes no sense to anyone, anyone outside the legal profession. And actually, I think in the legal profession, when you think about it, you're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Right. You know? So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the point is to, is to try and interrogate these rules a little bit because the rules are having a really, really detrimental real world impact. And to say, look, if we're going to do this stuff, let's try and make sure that we're right about it, you know, or let's. Let's not assume that it has to be this way. And let's try and build a system that relies more on actual evidence of what's happening in the real world. That's sort of a big description of the way that the team that got together for Utah sort of assessed the situation. And it was, I think, the reason that we got to the point that we did in Utah, the point that we did like back when we wrote the task force report, much less where we are now, is because we had these extraordinary minds in the room of like Jillian and Dr. Tom Clark, who's an extraordinary guy who's with the National Center for State Courts for years and is an economist as well and done a ton of research on access. And, and then Becky, Deborah as well. We had these really extraordinary minds in the room. And then we also had the leadership of the Utah Supreme Court who said, we understand this. We understand this situation. We understand this analysis of it. And we are ready to really do something about it. And we're ready to do something extremely bold. And that sort of leadership, which I think you're also seeing in Arizona, that sort of leadership is new in this regulatory reform space from Supreme Courts. But it's from Supreme Courts that we need it to happen because they are the regulators of the legal profession. That's sort of how it's set up in our system. So that's what we had in Utah was we had a court and particularly, you know, the, the vanguard of the court who took this project on was Justice Dino Homonis. And he, he basically said, yeah, we're going to do this thing. We're really going to do it. So that was sort of like the background. And then what we did was say, OK, what are you know, there's been a ton of criticism of this situation 
for years now. Again, you know, Deborah wrote about it for 40 years. But what we really need to do is get to the other side of that. We need to build a model. We need to create what the alternative could be. And so that was how I started to get involved because, you know, after my work at the Center on the Legal Profession at Stanford, while I was sort of in this family transition down to LA where I had to leave that executive director role, Jillian called me up and said, you know, would you like to work on this project with me? We need to build a model. We need to build a model of what a new regulatory framework could look like. And so I started to do that initially in partnership with IELTS, the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System at the University of Denver. And the leadership there was from Becky Corliss, who's a former Colorado Supreme Court justice and just an extraordinary leader in the profession. And then through the work on that project, got looped in with the Utah leadership because they were starting to move about at the same time or like a few months, maybe six months after I had already started really working on the model. So it sort of like was this weird organic timing wise thing, which was that I had already started the work. Becky and others had already started sort of funding me to do the work. And then the Utah leadership was ready to move at the same time. That's a great confluence of events, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I'll, I'll put in a plug here. The report the task force turned out, which I think was August of 19, if I'm remembering correctly, mm -hmm. is, is on your website. and. While it's very thorough and very long, the summary cover memo analysis is like 15 pages. And it's one of the best summaries of the access to justice problem I've read. And there's a lot of them out there. And it, and it really is a great descriptor of, of what y'all are doing. So for anybody listening to this, go to your website. Could you give it to oh. them? Yes. We just launched a new website, which I'm so proud of. It's awesome. Um, because we, the old one that we had was pretty awful. It's utahinnovationoffice.org. And the report is on there, and you can pull it up and read it. It really encapsulates a lot of the challenges you guys are. It's, it's extremely well done. So, so what you guys have created is what's referred to as a regulatory sandbox, which is, if I understand it from what I've read, and I don't profess to have this exactly right, is a, and it just got extended for seven years, if I recall seeing, yep. is a time period by which you're allowing alternative structures or alternative providers of services to apply for permission to operate in Utah in a different way. And you're going to monitor and evaluate them over a course of time. Did I sort of get yep. that generally right? Perfect. And if I read the materials correctly, that at some point, you had 47 applications and 26 have already been approved. And you've only been up and running not very long, right? Because didn't it take, yep. you've been up and running less We've than, been up and running know? since the end of August 2020. Okay. So 10 months or so. Mm -hmm. What types of entities have you approved or do they fall into categories? Give us some examples of what sort of different structures or applications you're you're encountering. Sure. Yeah. Let me go back one sec, and then I'll and then I'll move to that one. But I, the you're right. The regular your description of the regulatory sandbox was perfect. It's basically a policy space where we say, okay, within this space, entities are able to come in and they're able to try out new things that would not be permitted under the traditional rules, and it's. A mechanism that kind of took off in the fintech space because mm -hmm. the, it was recognized that the technology, 
and in fintech, it was really technology, was outpacing regulation with things like cryptocurrency and distributed ledger technology. Like it was just, we need a space where people can try out these things and we can better understand them before we make policy decisions about them. And that really kind of tracks into what we're trying to do in Utah as well, where you've had such a restricted market for so long, we don't really know how these new entities could or could not, particularly where, when we're talking about new service providers, could or could not impact people. So we wanted to create a carefully controlled space. So the sandbox is really right. But the other big piece of this is that we really are creating an entirely new way to think about regulating legal services, which is one that's based on setting out objectives for the system. Like our objective is that we want a well-developed, high-quality, affordable, and competitive market for legal services in Utah. So that's our goal. And then we measure, we assess entities in the sandbox according to the risk of consumer harm. Because if consumers are harmed in a substantial way, then our regulatory objective will fail. So well, what do you mean what do you mean by harm? We mean very specific things. We mean harm related to the provision of legal services. So we actually have distilled it down to three three specific harms and I can tell you what those are because part of what we're also uh, focused on is that there are already a lot of ways in which consumer services are people can get redress for for harms in the market right we've got tort we've got contract we've got fraud we have consumer protection statutes we have antitrust we have privacy acts etc so those systems all exist. We don't need an entirely new layer on top in legal specifically, but we do need to focus on where people run into trouble with legal services, which is that information gap issue, which is that people don't actually necessarily know when they've received a poor quality legal service, right? right. Um, and they also don't know when they might have been sold a bill of goods because they don't really know enough about what they may or may not need from a legal perspective. So our harms are really focused on just those issues, which is identifying whether a consumer is receiving a poor quality legal service. So whether they've gotten bad advice or they their legal service provider failed to spot a relevant issue. So they were not able to exercise a right that they had. And then the second major one, so we articulate that in three ways, which is like poor quality, failure to spot an issue. And then the third one is basically upselling. They were sold a legal service that they didn't need. So that's the goal. Like, and and we we have said that as a regulator, our office is the regulator, the innovation office. We are really laser focused on those three harms. So there's a lot of other potential issues out there, but to do this job right, we are focused just on consumer harm and those three consumer harms. We may, as we go along, see evidence of other consumer harms, and we may add another one in. But for right now, we're really, really focused on those kind of legal consumer harms. How do you so, find those? How, yeah, how, do you, how do you assess that? Yeah. So I'll describe a little bit about how we've set up the admission structure, and then that'll go into reporting, which will go into how we hope to see this happen. So what we did is essentially we said, okay, you can come into the sandbox, you apply, and in your applications... I mean, there's very few upfront rules. You can't have a disbarred lawyer own more than 10% of an entity. You can't, the entity can't just be a vehicle for out-of-state lawyers to come and practice in Utah. And in fact, out-of-state lawyers can't come and practice in Utah through the sandbox. And lawyers partnering with these entities have to conform to the rules of professional conduct unless you seek a specific waiver 
of any of those rules. Those are the rules. That's it. <laughs> you mm -hmm. have to make some disclosures to us about ownership and stuff like that. But so you come in, you kind of explain to us what you want to do, right? So I propose to take on venture capital investment. More than 50% ownership will come from venture capital for this entity. And otherwise, we're going to employ lawyers and it's going to otherwise basically look like a traditional firm. So we say, okay. And we developed this. As we started to kind of see folks coming in, we developed this framework that said, we know very little about what these things look like, but let's just for now, assume that the further away any proposal gets from traditional legal service, the higher risk we're gonna treat it. So where lawyers are still doing the law stuff, even if there's different business structures around those lawyers, that's relatively low risk because in our framework, we say to the lawyers, you can do this, but you are still on the hook for the rules. You can still be disciplined. The traditional, you know, individual lawyer regulation still applies. So you've got dual regulation of these lawyers in this system through the entities they work for and individually through the rules. So we're going to treat those as lower risk. That would be like where you've got non-lawyer investment, where you've got a lawyer working for a non, like a tech company or rocket lawyers in the sandbox. That's that's an example. I saw that, yeah. So those ones are kind of lower risk, and this is like our upfront categorization, right? Then the further away you get from that, where you've got non-lawyers providing services, whether software or human non-lawyers, we're going to put you in a higher risk category upfront. That means that you're going to have more kind of intrusive reporting requirements. You're going to have to tell us more at the case level, you know, individual consumers, you don't give us their names or anything, but you have to tell us more about what you did for them, what they needed and what you did for them. So we have two more categories, moderate and high. Moderate risk are where you've got non-lawyers providing services, but a lawyer is involved on the front end and sort of developing training or training the algorithm or what have you, developing the software. And a lawyer is doing kind of regular quality checks on an ongoing basis. This is not the same as rule 5.3, it's not as specific as Rule 5.3. It doesn't necessarily state that the lawyer has to kind of sign off on every piece of work product, but it is saying like there's kind of an ongoing lawyer oversight role here. The highest risk is when there's no lawyer involvement or the lawyer is just involved maybe on the front end, but not on an ongoing basis. And we just authorize our first high risk entity. That's sort of like the upfront categorization. So then what that means, what those categories mean is that you have certain reporting requirements. And so for the lower risk ones, it's relatively simple. Low risk, where there's like a minority ownership interest uh, by non-lawyers, they just have quarterly reporting requirements. It's really just basically kind of complaints reporting. Moderate risk is similar, mostly focused on complaints, but monthly. And then once you get into moderate and high, we're actually asking them to provide sort of what did the consumer ask for? Like, did they ask for just some legal advice? Did they want a document completed? Did they want full representation? Did they want a referral? And then what did you give them? So we can track that a little bit. And then also we are asking them for data on legal outcomes. So was there a legal resolution to this consumer's issue or not? And then financial outcomes, if applicable. So, you know, was there a settlement? Was there a verdict or like a financial award or what have you, as well as complaints? So, and then they, they also have to report the amount the consumer paid. 
and what area of law and what the actual like kind of so we have general areas like end of life planning and then we say tell us also what the specific legal problem was that the consumer came in for and so that would be like end of life planning would be the general area the specific problem would be i i want a will or i need a power of attorney or something like that you know on some of these lucy i'm, I'm interested in the tech heavy component to this because that's I assume that's one thing you're trying to incent because that's a way to scale knowledge without having to be tied to specific people. For whether it's a rocket lawyer or legal zoom or somebody who's taking in capital to develop a software product, will you actually audit the product it is that they're putting out there? I mean, will one member of your team, for example, go on and see if it produces a will that makes sense? Or are you yeah. or are you relying on the consumer to report? This doesn't look right to me. We're doing both. So not, again, not for the lower risk entities, but for the moderate and high, we will be doing an audit of the non-lawyer service provision piece. So for moderate, it's just sort of a, did you set this up so that it's competent? You know, it's not necessarily, is this the highest quality thing? Because that's also, we're very cognizant of most people don't have access to a lawyer, so we're not necessarily measuring against lawyers. But we want to make sure that the thing, whether it's a software tool or a non-lawyer provision, is basically legally accurate. I always think about it. We're, we're trying to set the floor. Right. Um, so yes, that is contemplated. And we are in the, we actually are in the process of, we've only got two entities right now that are ready to be audited. And so we're actually kind of in the process of working out what that's going to look like. So we have the protocol in terms of the framework. And then we, we pulled this, we have, we have a wonderful head of data who comes from kind of the medical legal partnership world. And so obviously like this kind of auditing is much more common in the medical field, like auditing of medical records and what mm -hmm. have you. He's developed out an, a really simple, simple, simple protocol because we don't want this to be too expensive either. We want to be able to do it at scale if we need to. Hopefully we'll need to. And so now the question that we're kind of grappling with, and this is Steve, I feel like you would love doing this because it's every day is some new, weird, hard issue to think through. Um, but now the, the question is like, okay, what do we need to see to make a sort of good conclusion about this? You know, so, so, and that question is really different when you're talking about software versus people, but we're really thinking of it like inputs and outputs. What were the inputs that came into you and what were the outputs that you produced and what's the bare minimum that we can look at to be able to say something about the quality of this product? You must also have an interesting, I don't know if you've had this situation occur yet, but people who are taking out outside investment to develop a software product, as opposed to coming to you with a fully developed product, you must also be challenged with when do you get involved? Do you look at it at the beta stage? Do you, how much do you get involved in the development cycle has got to be, you're dealing with so many interesting issues. It's, it is true. But that one, no, we really, because and you'll like this, I think, because whether it's a software piece or if it's just a straight new business, we are trying not to get involved at all in sort of like taking apart the pieces on the front end because we don't know. We don't know enough about how these things, whether they're business, new business structures or, or new software tools. Like, and we have to assume, I think, going forward, particularly if, if our goal is to get really sophisticated software offering legal services, we may not be able to interrogate the front end, but what we can interrogate are the outputs. 
So because and what we're trying to do with this data stuff and the coding of the data is get to a, a common language that cuts across all these different types of service providers. Because again, like we have, it's not an upfront structure. We've got all sorts of entities doing all sorts of different things in the sandbox. Right now we do, and then hopefully down the line we'll have more. But if we can cohere the back end so that the outputs are coming to us in a language that is coherent across all the entities, then we're really able to say something about what's coming out. And then we can say, this is a problem. We're seeing a problem here in these outputs from this entity. And then we can go back and say, okay, we see this problem, you need to fix it. And then, you know, we can work with them to figure out how to fix it. So all of that is like relatively theoretical at this point, because that hasn't happened yet. But the idea was, we know that these really sophisticated software programs and algorithms are, unless they're built through explainable AI, which not many are, we want to create a system that enables the language coming out to be understandable. And so that's kind of that like reporting and coding piece. Which is consistent with your focus on consumer harm, because it's, it's, yeah. They they don't care how it's produced. They care what is produced at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And that's it's like it's such a cool feature. If it works, it's such a. I think it's like really. I know a lot of really smart people are thinking about how to regulate, you know, AI and all of these new technologies coming online. And part of why I think we've been able to do what we do is because we focus so narrowly on legal consumer harm. And we've made that very, very, very specific. It's hard enough to do at that level of specificity. But I really like that we've said, look, the front end is going to be perhaps impossible going forward. You know, we can't set up a code of ethical conduct and ethical, maybe we could for AI, but these aren't people. These are entities and these are software systems. Can we figure out a way to regulate that enables the innovation and creativity and flexibility and variety at the front end, and yet still has this really functional consumer protection piece that is enacted through the back end and the ongoing regulatory relationship. Let me ask you another hypothetical question that I suspect you won't be able to answer. But you talk about exiting the sandbox. What does it mean to exit the sandbox? And is it possible to do that before you've got a permanent regulatory structure in place? So, yes. The exiting the sandbox piece right now, essentially what we've laid out, and this is in our innovation manual, office manual, which is available on the website, is you have to have a certain number of months slash and provided a certain minimal number of services. And those kind of, those are keyed to the risk categories. We may make some changes to that in the next few months, but for right now, it's key to the risk categories. And so, for example, like what we have right now is that if you're a low risk entity, have to have nine months and a minimum of 50 services in the green, which is like, we haven't moved you into the, the watch or the warning category. You've been kind of copus mentis. And I should clarify that being moved from green, which is obviously good, <laughs> um, into a yellow or a red is based on the data. But one consumer complaint is not necessarily going to move someone down. Or one other indicator, for example, if we were to see a weird amount paid for a will, for example, we one, the idea is to be proportional, you know, and to set thresholds at which we say, okay, this is a significant number of indicators of harm, and we need to actually move this person into a watch or a warning category. So we have those thresholds developed internally. We don't share them publicly because we would worry that people would gain the system if we did. But the other piece of it is, 
and this is actually like the more relevant piece right now is that we consider your inability to comply with our reporting requirements or refusal to comply with our reporting requirements in the way that we ask you to as also evidence of consumer harm. And that's actually something that we've been dealing with much more because as you can imagine, reporting and particularly reporting in the codes that we require you to report in is hard for lawyers. <laughs> Our tech guys are fine. <laughs> like, the, you know, the, the, the guys who are coming from the tech world or the, or the you know, the um, kind of business innovation world, they get it. You know, they kind of build it into their systems. It's no big deal. It is much harder for our lawyers, like just like kind of mentally and emotionally, like having to report regularly on what they're doing. They do not like it, but we need them to do it because otherwise we don't know what's happening. So we've set these standards of like, you have to be in the green for a certain amount of time and a minimum number of services before you can apply to exit the sandbox. And when they apply, basically the idea is that if they get authorized, then they sort of have like a permanent authorization, but they still will be under the regulatory oversight of the office. And we have said in some, like, you basically would have maybe biannual, I can't remember what it says in the manual right now, but I think it would either be biannual or annual complaint reporting requirements. And you'd still have to have the disclosures and all that sort of stuff. Last question before we wrap up, Lucy. Utah's at the tip of the spear here in, in a fabulous way with perhaps Arizona and there's other work in other states. And I take it from your prior comment that the leadership of the Utah Supreme Court was a key component in getting there. What are the dimensions that are at play at Utah that have led y'all to be at this stage you don't think of Utah as being out there necessarily, but you clearly are. It's a, it had to be a combination of factors. What are those factors? Yeah, it's funny. I get that question a lot. Like, why Utah? I Where did this do. come from? It's out of nowhere. <laughs> I can't stress the leadership of the court enough. I mean, I think they have, they have a very young court. It's a small court. I think the oldest justice is 62. It's five justices. They are a delight to work with. I mean, they've really had to work hard to get I mean, we, we basically have put before them an entirely new way to think about their job. Although the Supreme Courts are ostensibly and actually the regulators of the legal profession, for the most part, they've delegated that role to the bar. And it's a rules-based system. It's very familiar to them. It's, you know, they don't have to do a lot necessarily. I mean, they, get, they have to deal with rule changes, but like it's not an active regulatory kind of role generally that they've taken on. So we basically came to the court and said, hey, we want you to do this whole new thing. And they were like, okay. So they've been a delight to work with and their leadership, the chief and Justice Simonis, but all of them have, have really kind of come along for the ride. And they, not to say that they rubber stamp at all, but they, cause they don't, they ask really hard questions. They push back, but they, they generally, I think are very much our partners in this, um, and they they want to figure out a new way to do this. So that leadership has been extraordinary. I think also Utah is a very small state, and it's a very pro-business state. They're not huge fans of regulation in the state. And, you know, it's funny, I think this is not deregulation in any way, shape, or form. I think I I think I just explained that quite well. <laughs> like, yes, yes. It's, it's a different kind of regulation. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually, you know, I can refer you to any of our entities who will tell you, particularly the lawyers who are, this is a lot more than they're used to having to do. But it is opening up the market to new providers and it is allowing new types of services. And so that sort of is in the, I think is more in the Utah ethos. Like they're actually, and this is a fact that tickles me to no end. There are four sandboxes in Utah right now, law, insurance, fintech, and then the governor just has one for anybody who wants to come in and get rid of some regulations. So it's really kind of like, 
That's amazing. I do think ours is actually, yeah, I, I do think ours is, is maybe the most far along in terms of like, or maybe it has a different goal because we do it. It's sort of like building this new regulatory framework, but yeah, there's four sandboxes. So like the state is really interested and a lot of the Western states are like this. I think Wyoming has a FinTech sandbox, Arizona is obviously doing a bunch around kind of regulatory reform. I think where you see the difference is when you hit California and we've seen in California a much slower kind of movement toward this issue. They have now, they've just started this second working group to study whether they should do a sandbox. So, and California politically is very different. So it's a big ocean liner to move in California. Yeah, exactly. Well, Lucy, we've run out of time. I could sit here and have this conversation with you for hours, but we probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much. It must be a wonderful feeling to know you're really at the forefront of rethinking the practice and how you're transforming the profession. And, you know, keep up the good work. And we're, we're really looking forward to see what you talk and lead everybody else in this regard. Thank you again for joining. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.